Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Cornelius Plantinga joins us today. He is Senior Research Fellow at Calvin Institute of Christian Worship and President Emeritus of Calvin Theological Seminary. His books include Engaging God's World and Reading for Preaching, plus his new book, Under the Wings of God, 20 Biblical Reflections for a Faith, for a Deeper Faith. Uh, That is our topic today. Welcome, Dr. Plantinga. Thank you, Mark. Just call me Neil, if you will. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, You state that your main goal is to support and guide close and careful reading of Scripture to overcome, as you call it, superficial practices. Is this an especially acute problem that you've seen in the last few years, maybe among students or or young Christians in in general? I think... um... A superficial reading of Scripture has been a problem forever. Um, Scripture is a complex ancient literature. It uh, requires a little study. And surface meanings of um, verses, including popular verses, aren't always what the Word of God is actually saying. So, uh, yes, I think there's a reason we study Scripture, a reason we have sermons on it, a reason we have um, people who report out their own study of it to us. Uh, yes, I think uh, study is definitely called for. Your title comes from Psalm 91, which you, you spent some time yeah. discussing. What is, what, is the, what is the lesson of that psalm? Why, why, why did you choose that for, for your title on this particular topic? Psalm 91 is... Uh, one of the the truly beloved psalms of the Psalter. All kinds of Jews and Christians for many, many centuries have loved it because it tells us that uh, God is our refuge, that uh, under the wings of God we may find uh, protection, uh, comfort, uh, solace, and We are troubled, disrupted human beings who so much need protection and comfort and solace. So the psalm has been much loved. Uh, It's been present on many battlefields. And I um, I wanted to see what study of this psalm actually um, provides for us. Uh, One of the superficial readings of Psalm 91 is that... uh, If it says, no evil shall befall you under the wings of God, um, then no evil shall befall you. That's what the word of God appears to say. But of course, that's not the way life goes. 
Christians as well as everybody else get cancer, have trouble with their children, uh, find that they have more bills than resources, are um, mistreated by people they love. So trouble comes to Christians as well as to everybody else. Uh, they may be under the wings of God, but they can still get brain cancer under those wings. So I, I wanted to try to probe this some and see what, uh, if the superficial reading can't be right, what the deeper meaning of it uh, might actually be. And I concluded that what it promises is that under the wings of God, no final evil can ever befall us. Nothing can ever take us out of God's arms, take us from out of God's um, loving shadow. Uh, things may buffet us, uh, we may be troubled, distressed, but we are never absent um, our eternal creator and savior. And uh, when life is over in the life to come in the new heaven and earth, then uh, the psalm in its fullness will apply to us. There'll be no more weeping, no more sorrow, no more pain. Till then, what we have is God's loving presence, the assurance that God never leaves us. And uh, to me, that is all by itself an enormous comfort. You know, a superficial reading of that psalm would give us, here's your phrase, advertising that sounds too good to be true. And then you just gave us, okay, here, here, here we go deeper. Here we get past that, that, that surface and that this is something that really applies all the time I think it does. when reading Scripture. I think it does. Um, a superficial reading of Scripture is easy. Uh, you know, you can do it in a minute. And it may fit with some of our uh, hopes and longings and preconditions and preconceptions. But um, a faithful student of the Bible, uh, a student of the Bible who really wants to find and absorb its true teaching is going to go deeper. You, you actually attribute this capacity to go deeper, not just to an intellectual training or a certain analytical acuity, but you give it, a, and it's a very strong word, I think it, it goes a long way, a mood. Yeah. A mood of faith yeah. is certainly required. And you know, there are other moods right. uh, as well. How, 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 how does mood shape how we take in words? Well, I think uh, we all know of, you know, the most obvious moods, uh, we're happy or we're sad, but uh, there are other moods as well. Uh, for example, um, a mood of receptivity, of openness to absorb something good, a mood of questing, a mood of, uh, of uh, curious interest. Uh, a student of the Bible, uh, is always in the mood to ask, uh, Lord, what are you teaching me here? Uh, what am I to take from this? How am I to uh, absorb this and live it out? So the mood of, uh, of, 
of respectful interest, of uh, readiness to absorb, of readiness to be directed. Uh, those are all moods that come from uh, basic humility. Uh, God is supreme. Uh, I am God's child, and I am willing to listen. Your next example uh, after Psalm 91 comes from the, the Gospel of Mark, and it's the episode with the man possessed by demons. And here we see, you say, Jesus, quote, on the loose. Uh, yeah, he's, 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 he's taking action, coming at us, as you put it. What should we conclude from, from the, how do we properly react to this, this rather, you know, aggressive Jesus? Right. Yeah, the superficial understanding of Jesus is that he is uh, gentle and kind, that he uh, loves to uh, welcome kindergartners onto his lap, that he speaks softly. <laughs> um, and that's uh, fine in its place, but it's so limited. Jesus, uh, the eternal Son of God incarnate, is a complex and formidable being, and he sometimes has very strong words in certain situations and strong actions. Think of some of what he said to the Pharisees and think of his action of routing the money changers in the temple. Um, and in Mark 5, we have this uh, rough story of Jesus uh, exorcising demons from a terribly troubled man and sending them into a herd of uh, swine who then stampede and dash over the side of a cliff into a lake and are drowned. It's a rough story. And uh, Jesus' um, interaction with the demons in this story is almost like a brawl. And I think it's important for us to see this side of Jesus too. He's really God on the loose. He's uh, the gentle savior who can be kind, uh, but he's also the formidable savior who is not content to leave things the way they are, but will sometimes take very firm and very direct actions to minister to a situation. And the Mark 5 story is, a, is a, an impressive and memorable example of it. You draw a counterintuitive judgment about that exorcism, uh, and you're talking about others' reaction, the onlookers uh, in, that, in that episode who are shocked by, by what they see, and also probably the reaction of a lot of, a lot of Christian readers. And here is your three-word summation. Sanity scares them. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, these villagers are very used to having this crazy man in their cemetery. He's shrieking out there. He's cutting himself. He's uh, raising quite a shine. And uh, they think, hey, that's the way these demoniacs are. Um, they're out in the cemetery. They're banging around out there. And uh, we're used to him uh, in that condition. That's the way he is. But the, um, the gospel uh, says that when they saw him uh, sitting clothed and in his right mind, they were afraid. They were afraid of seeing this man uh, restored to sanity. 
And mm -hmm. I think we can get some inkling of why they were afraid. Uh, they were used to the way things were. And now the change in this man is so dramatic, so unexpected, so unguessable, that uh, they know incredible power has just been on display and at work in order to restore his sanity. And it upsets them. It makes them think that this power might get into their own lives and ups upset their lives. And mm -hmm. so they feel threatened by the fact that this man is sitting there clothed and in his right mind. If that can happen, then miracles can happen. And if miracles mm -hmm. can happen, then anything can happen, including the disruption of our own lives. God on the loose is not just a comfort. God on the loose is a threat to our own status quo. And I think it's important to take account of that. Yeah. You know, the way you were describing that, I've seen that in the cities here in New York City, where I am now, and in, in other cities as well, where you have people out in public space, in parks, who are clearly disturbed people. They're damaged people. But... Uh, you know, the, the passers-by, they just go on. Oh, yeah, that that's, they're used to it. He's just part of the urban scene, and they, they go about their day. They're not, they're not disturbed by this at all. And what, what you said a few moments ago about sort of being accustomed to this kind of possession is in itself, I mean, would you, is, is there something sinful, would you say, about, about that kind of, laxity or, or again, you know, you become inured to it? That's a, that's a formidable question, Mark. Um, I think that we are often at our wits end when it comes to encountering what appear to be uh, disturbed people uh, in our environment. Uh, we're not aware that we ourselves can do much to assist them. We're not psychiatrists, we're not social workers, we're not their pastor, we're not their friend. Uh, what can we possibly do? I think uh, my own habit when I see uh, someone who I'm sure is much troubled from the way this person is acting, um, I pause and say a prayer for them. I refer them to God. Um, and their presence in my life that day will leave a little imprint. I'm not going to simply forget them. Uh, but I'm not aware that I am equipped to um, assist them more directly than that. And uh, I lament that. In that episode, why must 2,000 pigs die? Isn't that a loss uh, of, of property to people who don't deserve to lose their property? Sure looks that way. Um, these people lived off their herd and now they don't have them. And besides, the pigs are stampeded into a lake where they will die, where they die and where they will bloat. Uh, it seems so unecological. Hmm. Uh, the Gospels, and especially the parables of Jesus, often tell us stories that do not tuck in every corner. They don't satisfy uh, all of our curiosity. They don't answer all of our questions. 
And I'm not sure what to say about that. Um, I just recognize that those questions are pertinent and uh, unanswered by the story itself. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. In Chapter 3, you invoke uh, a certain capacity some people have, which you call second simplicity. Not first simplicity. There's a second simplicity. What is that, and how does that relate to the argument? Yeah, the context in this uh, reflection is uh, Jesus' command to love God with all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind. And I want to reflect on what it's like to love God with all of our mind. And in doing so, uh, I talk about the fact that I once read of a conductor who was uh, trying to uh, conduct the chorale, the chorus of St. Matthew's Passion. If you think of the music to uh, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, you'll have the music in your head. He was trying to conduct this chorale uh, with a professional chorus, and he says to them at one point, you know, your singing is very talented and it's really skilled, it's expert, but you're not giving me the sound I want. The sound I want uh, is really a congregational sound. Think if you were back in your childhood church and the whole congregation was singing this uh, music. What would that sound like? Well, so the uh, this professional chorale tried it again. They couldn't sound like amateurs. They weren't amateurs. But in their attempt to sing simply and uh, directly to sing like a congregation, uh, they produced what I will call second simplicity. It's not uh, simple-minded. It's not uh, simply simple. It's a simplicity that's got all of their talent and their expertise compacted in it. It's a simplicity that goes beyond complexity and incorporates it. Uh, an example that I like to use is of the fact that Mozart wrote variations on a very simple tune, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Mozart wrote, um, I don't know, nine or ten variations on this very simple tune. So you can imagine a child plunking out, twinkle, twinkle, little star on a piano. That's simplicity. But now imagine um, a concert pianist playing that tune initially, that's simplicity, but then playing nine variations on it. 
now the tune expands. Now the tune has uh, variations, complexity. And after playing those variations, suppose the concert pianist goes back to the tune itself and plays it in all of its simplicity. Now it is second simplicity. It's got all those variations inside of it, incorporates them and goes beyond them. That, I suggest, is what our love of God with all our mind is about. It includes uh, so much that scripture tells us about God's character, about God's habits, about God's ways with human beings and with non-human creation. We have all of that complexity incorporated into our love of God so that when we love God with all of our mind, we incorporate all that complexity and go beyond it to a second simplicity. Next, you speak of John the Baptist, but at a, at a later point in his life, when he's in Herod's prison, and you say that he, he's lost a bit of the fire that he had before. What is he experiencing at, at this moment in prison? John had been the forerunner. He had been blazing the way for Jesus. But now some of his disciples uh, tell him that Jesus is doing ministry, that he's out there in the hinterlands and he's not challenging the power structure in Jerusalem. He's just healing people and teaching them and visiting with Peter's mother-in-law. And um, John is impatient. He's frustrated. Why doesn't Jesus get on with it? Why doesn't hmm. he do what he um, apparently was sent to do, namely to unseat Herod and get Caesar out of their hair? Um, John is frustrated in prison. So Jesus sends him a message that tells him uh, that what he's up to is classical ministry, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. Um, blessed are you, John, if you are not offended by these things. But Jesus, quoting from the prophets, does not include a key part that John would have known by heart, namely that the prisoners are released. So John gets the message from Jesus sent so with such subtlety and indirection that he is going to stay in prison, that he will die in prison, that he is going to be um, a martyr for his faithful forerunning of Jesus and story seen that way turns out to be powerful. Let's jump ahead to another strong metaphor uh, in, in the book. This one's from Colossians, which tells Christians to, quote, clothe yourselves in patience. And that this, this relates back to John's impatience. Now, we know how hard patience is, especially in, in, in this world. How does Jesus give us the strength to be patient? I mean, how does our devotion to him not make us more impatient for his, his, his coming? 
Well, there are really two forms that patience takes. Um, one of them has to do with time. When we are patient, we are willing to dwell gladly in the present, and we refuse to let a hoped-for future uh, yank us out of the present and into an imagined future. The kind of patience that uh, Paul is speaking of in Colossians 3 is a different form. It's the ability to absorb irritants without getting paralyzed by them. A pokey driver in the left lane, um, a checkout line at the supermarket that doesn't budge. Hmm. There are all kinds of irritations out there, and the patient person is the one who can absorb them, who can absorb them without being overly uh, distressed, uh, overly disturbed, um, without getting angry. And... What's interesting is that uh, Paul's teaching is that patience of this kind, he calls it macrothumia, Greek word, which means having this very large capacity for absorbing irritants without getting paralyzed by them. Paul says that this is fruit of the spirit. So it's God's gift. God either gives it to you or God doesn't. But in Colossians 3, he tells us that it's our responsibility. He says, clothe yourselves with patience. And so what I do in my reflection is to ask, okay, suppose that we have some kind of responsibility to be patient, to absorb nuisances without letting them paralyze us, to even handle big disturbances in our lives in a way that reflects that we are finite beings. We might not get justice for them. We might not get justice for these big things until Jesus comes again. So what do we do in the meantime? Paul says, be patient with them. And I close this reflection with some suggestions about how we might clothe ourselves with patience. Uh, that we might, for example, apprentice ourselves to truly patient people. Most families have at least one truly patient person. Uh, all, all congregations have them. Many businesses have one or two or more. We can watch them, see how they handle things, annoyances, irritants that come at them. We can imitate them. Uh, learning a virtue is a lot like learning a musical instrument. You need to have a teacher and you need to practice. In chapter nine, you note, quote, Christianity is the only religion that centers on the dying and degradation of its God. Now, the superficial approach would look at this and say, well, why would anyone want to join this religion? Yeah. I mean, why isn't its God openly triumphant? I mean, I mean have, you ever, have you ever seen that 
the the passion might actually discourage a potential convert? Of course, yes. That's uh, a very um, powerful question. And uh, of course, at the time that Jesus uh, was crucified, was executed by the Romans, uh, it certainly looked as if the Jesus movement had come to an end. Uh, the disciples on the road to Emmaus uh, say, we had hoped that he would be the one to deliver Israel. But there you are. He has simply been crossed out. Yes, uh, of course, the dying and degradation of our God is a matter of enormous disturbance. How can God have um, allowed this to happen? And I think that you know, nobody's really up to explaining or um, justifying or finding some way to um, answer this question uh, properly. But I suggest that we think like this, that when the Son of God, the eternal Son of God incarnate, is crucified, what we see there is not an explanation for our own suffering. We don't see, look at the cross of Christ and say, aha, now I understand throat cancer. No, mm. not at all. The cross explains almost nothing along those lines. What we do see in the cross of Christ is that God enters our own condition, that God shares our lot, that our own lot includes suffering, sometimes terrible suffering and that God does not um, remain aloof. God enters into our situation, suffers the worst of it, and then in a mighty triumph over it, uh, is raised from the dead to uh, lead a whole new form of life that is now promised as our own destination in the end. The book is, on that note, the book is Under the Wings of God, 20 Biblical Reflections for a Deeper Faith. Dr. Plantinga, thank you for joining us. You are so welcome, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 Three three two two nine three zero.